So first and foremost. I think the the addition of pant leggings is really when you start to see your heroes get watered down. Can't even muster the ability to play straight pants that one. Uh, which is a good argument for absolute rulers. Everybody is going to get behind me. They're going to love me. And my support numbers will go through. When you hang out with the hero, it doesn't go well for you. My grandfather yeah. took the cop and just slid it right through the bar. Okay. And that became the dominant way our family did it. Okay. And so, <laughs> in both of my marriages, they were treated to that. Okay, wait, hold on. Yeah, rage haiku. How do you imagine the rubber chicken plant? My grandmother actually vacuumed in her pearls. Oh my god, it all makes sense. We've had the sexual revolution. It yeah. might have just been a Canadian standoff. We're gonna go back to 9 11. Dude, get over it. Mm-hmm. Nobody understands what the building is supposed to be. Agra has no <laughs> business being that <laughs> thick. When the cultists win, we all win. teacher at the seventh grade level here in Northern California, currently doing my job through the magic of the internet. Uh, and, um, yeah, I don't have a whole lot else going on right now. Uh, who are you? I'm Damien Harmony. I'm a Latin teacher up here in Northern California. And, uh, I also don't have very much else going on, uh, because that's basically finals week. Um, Oh, yeah. so it's, it's been exciting. Let me tell you, especially with all the power outages. So we can, now date this. Uh, yeah, is the the time of the January storms. So yes, yeah. Uh, yes. My neighbor and I were both sharing uh, glee over the fact that we had decided to actually get out ahead of the uh, curve and uh, what do you call it? Um, redo our fence. Oh yeah, because that thing would have blown down. Oh yeah, in a so easy. Yeah, so it's yeah, nice. No, it's you, nice. Uh, driving driving Robert. Uh, to his daycare mm-hmm. uh, the day after uh, the big blow. Mm-hmm. Um, every construction site we passed, the the chain link fences at every one of them yep. had blown down. Oh, yeah. Like everywhere. And uh, I wound up taking breakfast to my wife at her workplace. And um, if you are not familiar with the Sacramento area, one of one of the nicknames of Sacramento is the City of Trees which is, you know, lovely most of the time. Uh, but after a major windstorm, we turned into the city of debris. Ooh, yes. And uh, <laughs> I, I was a couple of times uh, going going down the street in front of her, her workplace. Uh, there were actually a couple of piles of, of downed foliage that were serious enough. I was looking at them like, is this car going to clear this? Oh, wow. Because I was because I was driving her car, which has a lower ground clearance than mm-hmm. mine, because we had not gotten our power back yet, and I couldn't get into our garage to get my car. Oh, there's no so, manual so, way to no, get in there. Wow. No. Welcome to apartment living. Oh boy. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we we pay extra money every month to actually have a garage to park one of our cars in, and that day I was like. You know, I feel like we bought ourselves into a problem. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, it's a once in a in a year problem, but it's still you didn't pay for that 
minus one yeah, day. So. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, but but the thing is, you know, you say it's it's a once in a year problem. Where where we are, we've been pretty lucky. I think this is the first time we've had. Excuse me, this is the first time we've had an outage that has lasted that long. I yeah, think I in the time in, in the time that we've been living here. So uh, that night, as we were lying in bed awake. Um, in my case, because I, I need a CPAP and I, I just couldn't breathe uh, right. to fall asleep, uh, we wound up buying a, a battery backup, one of those you know camping batteries. Yep. Uh, in case you know the next time this happens, so. Gotcha. Well. Yeah. So I don't know that I necessarily told you uh, what I'm writing about today. So I'm just gonna dive no, right this in. This is all. Yeah. Yeah. What are we doing? So uh, we're gonna talk about Star Trek today. And my okay. my working title is Star Trek was incidentally socially justice focused. Now okay. I'm I'm only talking about the original series here. I think that there is uh I, I mean I did over six thousand words just for TOS and I left out a bunch. Uh, so I can imagine that uh, TNG and DS Nine and and Voyager uh will get their own explorations later. Uh, but right now it's just TOS because it's far enough away okay. from us uh, that it's it's worthy of discussion. Okay. So uh, creator Gene Roddenberry, uh, like yes. Rod Serling, served during World War II in the Pacific Theater. Roddenberry okay. was a B-17 pilot and he flew 89 combat missions. All right. Now, yeah. Okay, Army, Army Air Corps. Um, yeah, I believe so. Well, he, yeah, B-17, so, so yeah. So he would have been, so so we're talking about the Pineapple Air Force. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. Interesting, interesting. I had not realized, I had known he had been a pilot. Mm-hmm. But I had not realized it was, it was specifically B-17s in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. So, and he right. did, he had an incident where he overshot the runway, runway, crashed, and killed two of his crew. Um, he was found not at fault for that uh, in an okay. inquest, um, as, yeah. as often happens. Like, you know, things yeah. happen. So, yeah. Now, once he got back to the States, he flew commercially for Pan Am. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and on Pan Am, he would do their long flights. And he would fly from, like, Johannesburg up to, oh, God, I forget where, um, Damascus. Um, which I think was their longest flight that they had at the time. Uh, and on a 1947 long one. Oh, it is. It absolutely that's, is. That's, that's the whole, that's the flipping continent yep. right there. Yep. Wow. All mm-hmm. right. The long way. Yeah. Okay. So on a 1947 flight from Karachi to Istanbul, the plane that he was technically the third officer in, but he was actually doing what's called deadheading, which you're hitching a ride with no real duties, but you can step in yeah. if needs be. Yeah. Um, he was on a, a plane called the Clipper Eclipse, uh, and the plane crashed in the Syrian desert. And so this is the second time he's crashed. Uh, and he helped pull people to safety, and then he organized the search parties to go find help. Uh, after everybody was rescued and, and taken out, uh, he stayed behind for about two weeks to, ask, to answer Syrian government questions about the crash, while most of the U.S. nationals got to go home. Now, the details of the crash are kind of interesting. Um, Roddenberry uh, was giving the pilot a break, um, and he ended up having to deal with engine problems, and he shut down the first engine, as was uh, apparently the same. Standard operating procedure, Exactly. Yeah. Uh, do you know the model of aircraft? 
No, but it's called the no. it's 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 called where did I write that down? It is called the Clipper Eclipse. It is something okay. that is it, the Clipper Eclipse incident or plane crash is actually pretty somewhat famous. Um yeah. for the following reasons. So it was a four engine plane and it could still stay aloft with three engines. And since none yeah. of the airstrips en route could affect repairs, the captain, mm-hmm. Joseph Hart Jr., uh, decided to push on to Istanbul. Now, previously, the captain and the first officer or the uh, purser were ex- inspecting the plane and they found that f- uh, something was leaking. They thought it was hydraulic fluid or perhaps oil and it got repaired, but obviously not enough. Uh, now, the other three engines began to overheat due to the added strain of making up for the other engine. And okay. so uh, Hart, the the captain, decided to descend a little bit to cool them off, get a little extra air across yeah. them. Yeah, and sense. even at this point, he still decides to press on as they're passing over Iraq because he's concerned that they're just not going to be able to get to repairs. Um, and he's like, no, we need to continue on to Istanbul. Then the number two engine caught fire. And it began to burn so hot that the fire suppression efforts failed. The magnesium uh, inside started burning up. And at this point, the fire spread oh, to the yeah. wing. Yeah, once once you get a magnesium fire going, yeah. you're you're yeah, you're, you're not gonna be able to put that out. Yeah. Uh, and and for those in the audience for for whom this detail might be important, it's a Darn it, my phone shut down in the middle. Uh, it was a Lockheed L049 Constellation. So, yeah. Anyway. Okay. Four-engine aircraft, as you said. Yep. Yeah. So, well, now right. a three-engine aircraft because yeah. the number two engine fell off. <laughs> then the well, gas now, lines now ruptured. A two, now a two-engine aircraft yeah. because the first one had been feathered. Yeah. And then the <laughs> gas line ruptured, and that ignited oh, even more. Christmas. So at 3 in the morning, or 3.30 in the morning, the plane crashed, um, and uh, it was a good crash as crashes go until one of the engines dragged on the ground and took it into a loop while on the ground, which then split the plane in two. Yeah, ground loop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Roddenberry broke two ribs. Uh, Both Mm -hmm. pilots died. The plane was on fire, and Roddenberry organized the evacuation from the burning plane, rescuing several people personally. Um, in fact, uh, like destroying a seatbelt in order to get someone out because it was jammed. Uh, until the pl- the plane's flames were simply too hot to continue to rescue folks from. Uh, his final rescue died in his arms. Actually, um, then afterward, they organized supplies. Uh, and uh, got all the first aid kits together and started treating people. And then he said, let's blow up the raft so that we have a shade shelter for when the sun comes up. Okay, good thinking. Yep. So he's very capable, okay? Uh, yes. And, and he is in there doing good work and rescuing people. And this will come in later uh, toward the end, uh, although some might accuse me of shoehorning, and I, I wouldn't say that you're necessarily wrong, but... Uh, while they're there, desert tribesmen come out to meet them, and Roddenberry goes out to to speak with them because now he is the ranking person. Yeah, he um, is the authority. Yep, yeah, he makes first contact with them, pun intended, and uh. <laughs> and then he convinces them to only rob the dead. Okay. So he's having search teams go and try to find a city. And he notices that there's some telegraph cables uh, and telegraph poles. So he says, go to the telegraph poles and take two teams, go in opposite directions. 
one way or the other, you're going to find a city. Yeah, civilization, somebody. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, now, because they were in the Syrian desert, they were close enough to the Euphrates River that fishermen also came up and then robbed the passengers. So pretty soon, the the survivors had only their clothing with them. Uh, He, again, like I said, uh, he ends up going, I think he ends up uh, getting to a small town, I forget the name, uh, and radios in that this had happened. And at first, they thought it was part of another Pan Am uh, plane that was a slightly different name. I forget what it was, but they thought that was part of the Around the World tour. And so it kind of slowed things down, but eventually they get everybody out of there. He stays for two weeks and whatnot. Now, yeah. uh, there's another incident that I didn't go too much into detail on uh, that happened thereafter, uh, shortly thereafter, um, and uh, he quits over that incident. So now you have somebody who is willing to quit over what he thinks is not okay. So Okay. Um, it was also found later that Pan Am itself was negligent in the maintenance of these engines. So you even had a measure of accountability okay. for a corporation. I mean, it was the halcyon days of the 1940s. So. Yeah. So. So from 1949 yeah. to 1953, Gene Roddenberry uh, was a police officer. And uh, he's a police officer who's trying to become a TV writer. Now, as a police officer, he's mostly working the traffic beat and he's writing speeches for the uh, police chief and for his captain. Okay. So he's basically public relations uh, officer for the police for the LAPD. So he'd moved from okay. I want to say New York to LA to to yeah. pursue a writing career, but he became a policeman. Yeah. Um, he eventually begins uh, getting more and more successful at writing. Uh, turns out that the captain actually, I think the captain was a friend of his dad's because uh, Roddenberry's dad had been a police officer. Um, okay. And uh, it turns out the the captain had been friends with his dad and I believe was trying to keep edging him toward, like introducing him to various people who were writing for television. This is the nascency of TV in L.A., so it would make sense that the police chief would be friends with people who are, you know, TV studio guys. Yeah. You know, we saw Bruce Wayne being friends with the police chief, so. Yeah, so, you know. (laughs) It's a thing. Yeah. It's, it's a trope for a reason. Mm-hmm. Connected people are connected. Yeah. It's, yeah. So uh, he ends up getting enough connections that he writes enough. He, he starts writing successfully enough and selling scripts. Um, and he begins writing for a TV show called The West Point Story, which also was just called West Point. And it's a very forgettable okay. TV show. And it's a TV show that had the full cooperation of the U- U.S. military. And that's when he quits. He's like, I can make a living at this now. Uh, okay. and he's, he's pitching ideas. He's submitting scripts. He's getting awards, actually. Often he's writing ideas for shows that are set, set in atypical locations. Uh, the one that really stuck out to me was there was a cruise ship in Hawaii called Cruise Ship Hawaii um, that he wrote a pilot for. Um, okay. Yeah. Not not much of a title there. No. <laughs> Well, again, it's the you, beginning. You can tell. You can, yeah, you can tell <laughs> that the the art form is nascent. Yes, it really <laughs> is. Like, uh, like, what are we gonna? So, so, uh, give me your elevator pitch. Well, okay, okay, so it's, it's we're throwing baseballs ship. in an elevator. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's... <laughs> yeah. it's a cruise ship. Yeah, in Honolulu. Oh, okay, all right. And what what, what are you thinking about titling it? Cruise ship Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, you All know right. what? All right, it's clear. Are you married gonna... to the title? Because I'm thinking <laughs> we could like narrow it down. You know, maybe maybe we could. You know, like what's the name of yeah. the ship? Yeah. Like... <laughs> so I'm talking is this a soap opera? Is this a comedy? Like you know, give me right. give me some information right. here. I can build something. But okay, but actually, we'll back then it. you didn't have to. <laughs> That's no, the best. No, part. No. That's you didn't because the art form was brand new. And it was like, all right, no, we got we got time in the schedule. We got to fill. Do right. it. Right. We're doing the template. Yeah. You know, yeah. we we're building it as we fly it. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, probably <laughs> bad choice of words given his his past. But given his given his background and some specific incidents there, that's yeah. not. <laughs> He's also writing plenty of western scripts, which is really popular at the time. Uh, well, yeah, that as was, that America was, loved was... Jedi Geki movies. So, oh wait, no, it's the other. Oh, ah. oh, thank you. You're welcome. You know, uh, there was actually the 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 uh, ubiquity is the word I was hunting for mm-hmm. of uh, westerns and police dramas, detective shows was so was so great yes. that uh, Mad Magazine. Uh, actually there was a gag in Mad Magazine in 50, I don't remember what, uh, where they, they were talking about, you know, and now the government is going to go in and they're going to start regulating television programming. And, you know, you can't have two Westerns back to back. You have to put a police detective show in between them. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> but that's how it went. You know, yeah. I mean, a lot well, of again, like, a lot of TV was, shows were you know reskins of radio dramas and stuff like that. Yeah, so, well, yeah. Lone Ranger. Yeah, and and because well, no, there was a TV show Dick Tracy. Because but. they're in LA, you have access to outside scenes where the police could be, and you have access to a cooperative police department, and you have access to uh, you know, all the places that you could go to make it look like the old West. Yeah. So you know, you had a lot of that. Yeah. No, it makes sense. If if yeah. television had been had been born instead in you know the Pacific Northwest, you'd have had lumberjack dramas. Like oh you know, God, yeah. I want lumberjack dramas now. Besides Don't Twin Peaks. Know? Besides Twin yeah. Peaks. That was a yeah. lumberjack drama. Uh, yeah. Okay. One <laughs> really of the characters was a log. Okay. Fine. There was a fish in the percolator. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay. I don't want to argue, but I can't. <laughs> but you know, um, yeah. So and and everything, every, every no matter whether you were in West Texas or you know Virginia or you know Tombstone, Arizona, everything looked like the hills outside L.A. Right. You know. Yeah. Which is cheap because you just <laughs> yeah, go oh, out yeah. there and point a camera. You know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. Also, uh, he would write episodic TV shows that traveled. Um, so it, it was more, the setting was with the people and their infrastructure than it was anything else. There's just some like Route there. 66. Um, you know, honestly, I never saw that one and, and that didn't come up in the list of things that he wrote for, but, uh, okay. there, there were several where, um, you're following characters who are moving through, uh, different locales. Okay. So, which is basically what a Western is. Honestly, it's either trouble comes. It's yeah. either trouble comes to the ranch, or guys are on the range. Yeah, this is true. Now, this is true. at this point, I can't find much evidence of his ideology. Uh, he seems pretty, pretty vanilla, pretty bland. And then I ran across something about a TV show called Riverboat that ran from fifty nine to sixty one, and it was okay. set on a riverboat. 
seems kind of obvious in retrospect. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so it was set in 1860s Mississippi. Now, when we say 1860s, do we mean the first half of the decade or the second half of the decade? Uh, early, early, yeah. So it's it's antebellum. Uh-huh. Or it's okay. bellum. Okay. Yeah. yeah. A- anti, anti, or. Yeah. What's, what's during? Anti uh, is you would before. use, you'd use uh, in, in bello. In bello. Yeah. Okay. So it's either antebellum or in bello. Yeah. Or post bellum. Uh, yeah. Post bellum. Yeah. Okay. Um. All right. Okay. Now here's this, the thing. This is, not, this is not leading in a direction I'm entirely going to be thrilled with, I yeah. fear. So as it turns out, they didn't want to have any black actors on the show. And Roddenberry argued so much with the showrunners and the producers that he lost his job. He was like, you can't do Mississippi in the 1860s and not have black people. So wait. Yeah. Okay. Hold on. Yeah. Hold, this is the first on. I found of his ideology. Uh, okay. Yeah. I'm. I'm not even. You know what? I'm, I. I. I am. I am pleased to to discover that that is the case mm-hmm. in this in this in this incident. Um. What I am kind of more gobsmacked than I probably should be, because we are talking about the 50s here, mm-hmm. is. Somebody wanted to wanted to set a show on a riverboat. Yes. In Mississippi. Yes. In the eighteen sixties. Yes. And they didn't want to have any black actors. Well, there is blackface. Like 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 wait. Okay, but honestly, got... if you set it in a riverboat. You don't have to have them land in any towns where you land in the white section of town or in the black section of town. And you could have it where, I mean, you could write it in where white America would be like, are you, are you never going to see anybody deliver food to anybody aboard the ship? Are you never going to see You could have a young man doing that. A young plucky young man, a Jack London type character. Not, 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 not historically accurately you couldn't no of course not i mean do you remember happy days that shit was made in the 70s and it's not that different they said it in milwaukee because people pretended that black people didn't exist in milwaukee but like malcolm yeah, x's right. family literally lived there lived in milwaukee yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so yeah. no I, I i get it yeah. yeah no i i understand but like there's there's like at okay. least 90210 was accurate yeah like <laughs> it's, you know okay yeah you know, this is gentrified they did price everybody out utterly so. gentrified. they yeah. priced everybody out it's it's the oc like you know yeah. it's 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 you know near there yeah like you know uh but but wow uh-huh it, it's it's one of those moments where you're like well you know i know that you know the history of my country is pretty fucking racist and then i hear that and i'm like that's not just racist. That's fucking stupid racist. Well, it's one of those like, like oh, that's how it manifests. Okay. Yeah. You know, <laughs> just on and yeah. on and on. Yeah. yeah. And, in the and, weirdest and ways. Guys, and, the guys, and the guys writing the show probably didn't think they were white supremacists. But like, right. dude. Yeah. Well, be, okay. The, the guys running the show yeah. are studio guys. The studios yeah. were instituted in the 20s. Yeah, And we talked about, again, talk about nascency of movies, right? We talked yeah. about that old model, and it was very often people from the eastern seaboard and or southern uh, cities, and they yeah. would come out 
or it was people living in the far west where, again, it's you have uh, transplants from the south coming out uh, and you have people who are in the skilled trades and that was shut out to black people for the most part. So, I mean, you have this kind of revolving reinforcement of white supremacy going into it all. So it does it does unfortunately make some sense that. Yeah. The people, and here's where it gets really insidious, um, because the people who were running the studios, uh, there were a number of people that he talked to and that he dealt with that I don't really include in, in this because I'm more focused on him, but uh, people who were absolutely 100% Jewish, but they changed their names. And then you, I mean, you do have that complicity yeah. with, you know, the need to hide yourself in some ways so that you can make money. And therefore, you have to appeal to the German market in the 1930s during film. Or you have to appeal to the Southern market because you don't want racist station owners in the South to not carry your broadcast for NBC, you know, and stuff yeah. like that. So, I mean, it yeah. just, it's so just ingrained. Like you yeah. said, they didn't think yeah. they were white supremacist. They were answering a market need. And that's as far well, as they could go with it. And, and, and again, it was, they were, they were product of, of the system that they were working in. Yes. And I mean, it's, it's like the same thing. Uh, you know, my, my buddy, uh, Sean, uh, works in tech Mm -hmm. and one of the things he is constantly winds up pushing back against, you know, management in, in the companies that he worked, that he has worked for, including the one he's working for right now is, you know, they talk about, you know, hiring people. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and like, well, you know, um, you know, we don't, we don't want to be, you know, racist in the way we're hiring, but it's just, you know, these, these guys don't have the experience. Well, they don't have the experience because nobody's fucking hiring them. Right. <laughs> you know, why like, was the monkey dead? Cause like, it fell out of a tree. Why did it yeah, fall out of a tree? And, Cause it was dead. And you're like, at okay, some and, point. And, yeah. And, and, uh, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with that, mm-hmm. like looking at somebody's resume and, you know, uh, putting it in the ash can based on a name, mm-hmm. like dude, like he, he, at the, uh, company he and I worked at together mm-hmm. a number of years ago, uh, he actually, he got into a shouting match with the, uh, HR director of the company. Mm-hmm. Um, because, uh, the guy, the guy was, was basically saying, Without saying it straight up, the guy was saying he didn't want to hire somebody because the guy was Hispanic. Right. And well, you know, and and you know, we were sending people out to job sites, and we don't want clients like, no, stop. Right. L- listen to yourself. Yeah. And then really tell me what what is it? You know, like no, this mm-hmm. guy is because apparently the guy was hyper qualified, highly highly competent, and they were like, well, yeah, but you know. Um, We've we've got we've got some clients that you know aren't gonna aren't gonna like having them out on the site. It's like, well, then their money's <sighs> not worth your time. Yeah, like, dude. Yeah. So anyway, so now a little bit about the show Riverboat. Now the show follows Darren McGavin as the captain, and for the first half of the first season, it follows young Burt Reynolds as his aide de camp. Okay, so it's a show about a ship traveling where you focus on the captain and his friend on a boat okay with a hard drinking engineer okay and a clearly scottish character as the engineer no but a different character okay yeah 
and eventually Abraham Lincoln. Okay, who, of course, also appears in yep. the original series. All right. Can you okay. guess the name of the riverboat? Not the Enterprise. It is Don't the Enterprise. No <laughs> the shit. The really? grin I've had on my face for that. <laughs> It's the Enterprise. Yeah, you should, you should, you should see the rat grin, everybody. You should, you should see the the cheese ball fucking oh, grin on Navy's face myself. with that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So check this out. In one episode, the captain gets involved in a whip fight with a really tall villain, and nearly strangles him to death. Okay. In another one, they run Wait, into a back yeah? up. Okay. Back up. Okay. The captain. Yes. Darren McGavin. Uh huh. Darren McGavin. Uh huh. Gets into a whip fight. Yes. And nearly strangles somebody. Yes. I can't picture that. <laughs> anyway, with, with someone who's really tall, by the way. Yeah. Well, like, yeah. Like in an yeah. arena, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. in another episode, they run into a deserted area where a doctor is trying to determine the cause of a plague that depopulated the area. Okay. And they run into people who are a group of people who are searching for a utopia in another episode. <laughs> on, on the Mississippi in the 1860s. Sure, sure. Like and, the whip fight thing, I'm like, okay, yeah, it's the Deep South. It's sure. the 1860s. Like, okay. Yeah. You know, my all, all that, that lines up perfectly with all of my own cultural prejudices. Like, no, I can totally see that. But a bunch of people hunting for a utopia uh-huh. along the Mississippi River, uh-huh. which, by the way, at that point was fully navigated and completely, I mean, as much as the Mississippi was ever charted, it was yeah. like, no, no, every square inch of the bank of that fucking river had been mapped. Oh, yeah. Okay. They also took on a father-daughter acting troupe that had the father playing Macbeth in an episode. So, so, so did, 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 uh, did, did he just like copy all of those scripts over and uh, like you know, change nouns and some like, things got changed, yeah. okay. Right. So in the final episode of Riverboat, yeah, um, Gene Ball, uh, and DeForest Kelly came aboard. Now, you might okay. remember DeForest Kelly because he I played Dr. McCoy. <laughs> but do you remember do the very... I, do I need to get out my nerd card to show you? Of course <laughs> I know DeForest. Come on. Okay. So do you remember... Okay, well, you, you will remember her in a second because in the first episode that ever aired, there was a uh, old flame that Doc McCoy ran into uh, who turns out was a salt-sucking monster. Remember? Right, that's played her. by Gene Ball. No kidding. Yep. Wow. Now, okay. You and I have talked about this before. Gene Roddenberry pitched Star Trek to Desilu Productions as very yeah. famously what? Wagon Train to the Stars. Except if you don't have other wagons behind you, it's not a goddamn wagon train. No. So. The reason why he said Wagon Train to the Stars was because Riverboat didn't do well. So he didn't want to tie it to that failure. Uh, And I think because he was like, well, Westerns are doing well. So we could just explain it that way. And so there you go. 
Okay, now now this this is 1961. He actually has yeah. a discussion with a friend of his, uh, a producer, I forget for where, um, and he discusses just the idea of having a show specifically set in space aboard a ship with a multi-ethnic crew. Okay. This is maybe a year after he gets canned from doing River Riverboat. Well, and, everybody got canned from doing River. I mean, you yeah. know. But like the, the, he he quit you know. over it. Though. Like he got fired yeah, yeah. over his well, arguments, yeah. right? Okay, yeah. All right, good point. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, in 1964, he finally puts pen to paper and writes up a 16-page pitch and he registers it with the Writers Guild of America as Star Trek. 64. Okay. Okay. So, as he's pitching it around, Roddenberry noticed that there was a paucity of sci-fi on TV, even though Lost in Space was starting to gain uh, popularity. So he yeah. would alternately pitch it as a Western in space, specifically, as we said, Wagon Train to yeah, the Stars. Wagon Train to the Stars, yeah. Or if he thought if he read the room and he's like, oh, these people want to have something that competes with Lost in Space, he would amp up its sci-fi nature. And, uh, okay. Yeah. Now that's interesting to me because again, it's not a wagon train, right? No. no. And and it's clear. And if you remember, I told you about that show that he pitched about the cruise ship in Hawaii. Yes. So this is the third thing that he's been involved with that involves a ship, which is a contained set traveling oh, yeah. to different locales with uh, the relationships of the crew being the thing. Yeah. Well, because for, for the for the art form, mm-hmm. the idea of having, you know, a self-contained yes. kind of, you know, carryover set of characters is, is makes things a lot easier from well, a production standpoint. And you can do bottle episodes. Nope. Oh, yeah. No, you, you, you can yeah. uh, for sure, which which, again, makes the writing simpler. Yeah. And you know. now you have a ship in a bottle episode. Uh, yeah, okay. Now, from the jump, Roddenberry is aiming at a multi-ethnic uh, uh, approach to things. And he obviously took p- issue with people not being on board with diversity on TV. These are yeah. all things that are demonstrably true about him. Yes. But. As per the usual, if we're going to understand the art and the work, we need to understand the author and the creator, and we need to look at his earlier life. So I already told you about that incident where he saved people's lives. I would point out that there are a number of episodes where shit crashes, um, where rescues are affected, where you have to make those kinds of decisions. I think that worked its way in in a fairly benign way. Now, Roddenberry himself was born in the 1920s, I think it was like 21, and he was raised in El Paso, Texas as a Southern Baptist. Okay. Now, around age 14, he began to question his own religion, and while he sang in the church choir, uh, he would make up his own lyrics. I just, that was too fun not to not to <laughs> keep in. <laughs> okay. Because I did the same thing when I went to youth group when I was 14. Uh <laughs> Why am I not surprised? Right. Well, the surprise is more that I went to a youth group. Yeah, I was going to (laughs) say, the only part of that that's at all surprising is you went to youth group? Yeah, it was before I started working, so I needed something to do, you know. Okay. Yeah, so... Uh, but yeah, uh, he, uh, he seemed to believe ultimately in a kind of secular humanism that definitely stopped short of atheism. 
he continued to work with churches uh, through his adult life. He accepted their praise. He wrote letters back and forth with them, having discussion with various representatives of those churches. But he did maintain a religious interest in other religions. For instance, he called Catholicism a work of art. Um, when he married, okay, I can get behind that. I'm sure you can. When he married Majel Barrett, it was in a Shinto ceremony in Japan. Okay, yeah, right. Yeah. Because Shinto is Shinto is weddings, uh, Buddhism is funerals. There you go. Culturally, uh, that's that's how that works out. Right, right. And I think what is it? You're born a Buddhist, you live a Shinto, you die a Buddhist. Uh, yeah, yeah. generally, yeah, pretty much. Uh, and and uh, Shinto is you know. Um, fertility and all of that kind of stuff. Buddhism is like, you know, let's, let's not wind up being a hungry ghost in hell. Right. So, you know, now anyway. his approach to religion and, and I'll give you some more quotes about it in a second, but I think, and it was really, as I was looking at how he conceived of religion, what he thought of it is really where my thesis kind of came about. He's essentially a narcissist. And I, I notice this by the way he looks at religion because, uh, and I'll explain why more so when it comes to women, but when it comes to religion, his problem with Christianity didn't seem to be moral or even particularly philosophical. It was that he didn't get why he had to be subservient to any god. Okay. And we're going to come back around to that much later, but yeah, okay. here's a quote. How can I take seriously a God image that requires that I prostrate myself every seven days and praise it? That sounds to me like a very insecure personality. He said that. Wow. And and I'm having flash forwards to uh, uh -huh. Undiscovered Country. No. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or no, no, not Undiscovered. No, the... no. Why does, why does God need a starship? I right. can't remember. It's, the... it's yeah. number five. It's, yeah. Yeah. Where he meets okay. God and he's not impressed. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and it turns out it's not actually God. But anyway, yeah. Is it ever? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Now, his was a more egoistic approach. Um, he said, quote, it's not true that I don't believe in God. I believe in a kind of God. It's just not other people's God. I reject religion. I accept the notion of God. Okay. Now, He's he's being quoted here usually uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, mid 70s even now. Again, okay. he yeah, he's a guy in his 40s and 50s talking about religion. He's gotten married in a Shinto ceremony out east uh, in Japan. Um, he honestly comes across as one of the many men who were creatives in the 60s. He's Lucas-like in his tendency to fetishize other religions. And he's ultimately disdainful of dogma. That's what I can figure. Like, he doesn't want the rules. Um, he doesn't like those. He's spiritual, not religious. So he's so he's a silent with a lot of boomer tendencies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kind of what I'm getting. Yeah. The vibe I'm getting here yeah. is... Or he's like the proto-boomer. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting. There's there's a lot of... I'm, I'm, and this is a comparison I never thought I'd ever make. But between Roddenberry and Heinlein, mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of I'm I'm getting a very similar kind of vibe. Heinlein 
in the sixties turned into a, you know, free love smoke them if you got them, like whatever they are. Right. Uh, uh, you know, but with a much more, uh, libertarian, you know, kind of, kind of right wing edge to sure. it, which is weird, but you know, um, you know, legalize pot and have sex with everybody, but by the same token, you know, patriotism. And it, it, it's a weird, it's a weird, and as a Heinlein fan, I'm saying this, but it's, sure. it's a weird kind of thing. But it's a similar kind of deal. And mm-hmm. there, Heinlein, I think, was older, but that's a weird, it's an interesting parallel that mm-hmm. these two guys who are, who are creatives of, of a generation that we don't associate with those kind of attitudes both wound up going that way. Well, was Heinlein also born in the further west? I don't recall. Let me look it I up. I mean, because Roddenberry's raised as a Southern Baptist, so white people yeah, religion, yeah. but in El Paso, yeah. which is surrounded by Mexicans. Um, yeah. And so you've got that. Oh, again, he's fetishizing the other. He's fetishizing Catholicism a bit by, oh, it's a beautiful work of art. It's what the yeah. brown people have. You know, he never said that, <laughs> but it would it would make sense that he. It's also what the whitest people on the planet have. I well, just want to point out. Yes, like, but in his experience blind, in El Paso, it wouldn't have been. That. Yeah, OK, that's a good point. The Catholicism, he would have seen would have been Irish or German. It would have been right. It would have been Hispanic. Yeah. So yeah, Heinlein was born in 07. Where? In Butler, in Butler, Missouri. Okay, farther west. So, yeah. So that frontierish. Now, he's yeah. Heinlein is I could see him being more libertarian uh than than Roddenberry here too cuz Roddenberry lived closer to a border, so he's seeing a lot more intermixing of people whereas mm. Heinlein lived, I mean, he was born in 07, so he's living uh, he's being raised by people who have a living memory of when the frontier was a, a thing that you pushed back further. Yes. And, yes. uh, and it's very white supremacist. So yes, oh, again, oh, immensely. so it makes uh, sense that Heinlein yeah, would go libertarian, also, whereas yeah. Roddenberry would go more liberal. And yeah. again, Roddenberry ends up living in LA and he ends up, you know, kind of, yeah. and, and you know, he's, he's a creative in that way. So, He's he's disdainful of dogma. I have no problem looking downward on dogma. Okay. You know, it, you it's know, not yeah, that much of a yeah. stretch. Yeah. Uh, there you well go. done. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, but he said that... Just or- watch out for my karma. <laughs> uh, he said that organized religion was for people who needed, quote, a, malfunct- a malfunctioning substitute brain. Functioning substitute brain. Yeah. He said you basically people needed a substitute brain and it was a malfunctioning one at that. Okay. Yeah. That's an awkward way to phrase that, but okay. Yeah. I, I think I probably Damien phrased it. Um, well, so. probably, it could, could be, but you know, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, having been, having been raised in El Paso, Texas as a Southern Baptist. Mm-hmm. And that being his his formative experience of and rejecting religion. it too, and then and turning around and rejecting it. Yeah, the the thing is, whatever your initial experience is of organized religion, it's going to color your outlook on organized religion. Yeah, forever. Like it's a it's a it's mm-hmm. a kind of paradigm thing that is just that's that's 
it's part of your it turns into part of your your base level coding now as you're saying that yeah southern baptist is the bloodletting is the <laughs> you know it's it's and like snakes yeah so uh, and yeah. it's the don't fuck because you're going to hell right so yeah. he's 14 and he's realizing <laughs> that a system that says don't fuck and you should be fighting people all the time uh, and he's like, I don't really like that. I like to make up my own lyrics to their songs. Yeah. So he's already a bit of a contrarian, and then he's he's reacting to that, and and like you said, it becomes part of your coding. You're responding to it. I think that yeah. response is absolutely. It's it's wrapping itself around a very underdeveloped and arrestedly developed sense of ethics. Okay. So. I'm okay. I'm interested in seeing where where that sure. goes here now, with your thesis. But now, the, the one yeah. the one thing I just I want to I want to get this out of the way before we move on. Of of all of the religions for somebody to be raised in, and mm -hmm. all of the environments of religion for somebody to be raised in, who turns into a contrarian, um, the breed of Southern Baptism that we're that we're talking about. Is and I'm 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 going to do this as unpejoratively as I can. Is is such an immensely top down. Mm -hmm. You know the theology is all very God is the big daddy and he's not a benevolent. You know and and he is he's benevolent but he's incredibly stern. Mm -hmm. You know and and just that being your formative experience. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, no wonder he he condescended to call Catholicism a beautiful work of art. Mm -hmm. Well, and again, <laughs> he sees that like <laughs> at know. the other church, so yeah. he sees the stained well, glass yeah, because, that yeah. you know El Paso the, Mexican Catholics are doing. Yeah. You know, yeah. So anyway, so on. yeah, so he is saying these things now. I kind of get it because in the 1950s and 60s, religion at that point, especially in white America, which is very different than religion. <laughs> Uh, than than Southern Baptist for Black America, oh, um, immensely. Which he frankly either seems to have ignored completely or been thoroughly unaware of. And being a white guy born in El Paso and then moving to L.A., you could not see black people for for much of your a life, very, probably. Yeah, a very long time. Yeah. So, uh, but he saw religion as a tool of conformity and control, and fair game there. Quite honestly, it's the 1950s and 60s. Oh yeah, I'm not going to yeah. So, and and because he's not black, having the black experience in America, he doesn't see religion as a as a tool of uh emancipation or of liberation. Resistance, resistance yeah. or comfort or right. Hope. Yeah. yeah. So, now when it comes to the abrasions that often happen when one religion holds more power than another religion, he was decidedly the woke dude in the middle about it. So like when when <laughs> stuff happened in the 60s <laughs> and the 70s, you know, and and he'd be like, well, you know, I it you shouldn't call one group terrorists and call the other group freedom fighters when they're both doing the same thing, but really religion is bad and really violence is bad on both sides if they would both just wake up and realize that they're both the same then it would be better and like that's 
and and the, like the gem of that is yes, that sounds great, but you're you're masturbating. You well, one, you <laughs> one one you're you're jacking off philosophically without getting anything fucking done. Right. Number one. Yeah. Number number two beyond that um i mean what what we have had to be educated about i think when mm-hmm. when i say we i mean well meaning white people what we what we have had to be educated about in in the years since then mm-hmm. is that that characterization puts an incredibly unequal burden yes on the two sides yes because it's really, really easy for, you know, the people in power in the equation to to say, all right, well, you know, what do you want, mm-hmm. right? And it's an awful lot harder for people who don't have the power, don't have the access to power, to to make themselves heard. Yes, and and, and to. And for... and to explain the reality of their lived experience yeah and uh, and i would also point out um and again speaking as a formerly uh good white liberal uh so i i can speak w- from experience woke, woke woke dude in the middle woke dude in the middle the the real problem is that not love, everybody thinks like you. me you yeah. know <laughs> it's, if only you children would i mean just the yeah. the, the colonizer yeah. mentality that that has um you know, let me let me erase both of your experiences and just tell you, you know, what is yeah. what is correct. Oh, yeah. Uh, which, by the way, that's going to come back up a number of times. I'm uh, sure the Y chromosome arrogance yeah. in that is is amazing. Yeah. And and you know, coming at this as somebody who was raised by Reagan Republicans, mm-hmm. um, I I have I have had to come even farther. Mm. Um, you know, because, you know, originally, yeah, I, I don't even want to get into it, but yeah. <laughs> right. Well, so, yeah. so sitting there and telling a group that is literally fighting for their existential, literal existential existence, like ignoring yeah. them is yeah. an existential threat and telling them like, well, you know, there's, there's, there's blame to be had on both sides when the other side has been an oppressor. Like and yeah. and could ignore you, and that means your death. Yeah, that kind of uh, blanket statement uh, does nobody any good but the any, oppressors. Any good at all? Yeah, it, it's yeah. a passive version of protecting the status quo. Yeah. So anyway, he he talks like that a lot. Uh, now Roddenberry figured that by the time Star Trek would have happened, twenty third century. Uh, humans would have grown past the need for religion, and and I absolutely see why that's an attractive idea. I happen to uh, really hope for it, um, but uh, that that doesn't mean that we're there yet, or that the way of getting there is a good way. Especially when mm-hmm. you look at further Star Trek properties, and they're like, "Oh yeah, we had to go through the eugenics wars." It's like, "Oh shit, never mind, not worth it." Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. uh, now he figured that uh, the need for religion would would no longer be there. And as such, there's very little room for religion in Star Trek. The characters themselves don't have much of a religion, at least on the surface. 
and and I'm going to get into it more. Now, it's pretty clear in The Next Generation also, and this is probably like one of the only references I'll make to TNG because I just watched this episode again too. The episode where Picard becomes known as the Picard to the uh, proto-Vulcan race. Um, right, right, right. Yeah. Straight up mentions that that race had already done away with superstition and religion. Those were paired long ago. And that the real disaster was that they were possibly going to start believing in a god again not that picard is a false god that's that's a given obviously but like straight up that they will start believing <laughs> mm-hmm. in a god of any kind that's the problem now this was a season three episode and it was a really good one but it was a season three episode while gene was still alive later on you'll see other ones that deal with religion in a very different way after gene is gone uh, but that is that is another story, as as Conan would say. Um, yes. So his approach seems to be similar when it comes to marriage and sex too. Roddenberry pursued and eventually won the affection of his first wife, and by his approach, I mean that narcissism, because his first wife Eileen was reportedly very beautiful, and he pursued her hard. At first, she was uninterested, but he persisted. And I always hear stories like this, and now, looking back, I wonder, I truly wonder what ability a woman had to tell him, fuck off, I'm not interested, don't call me anymore, without risking some sort of social (sighs) derision. Yeah. So it's a red flag to me. Now, her family saw him as lower class. He's the son of a police officer, and they discouraged it, but he was either charming enough or, frankly, women didn't have the agency to fully be able to say no back then forever, yeah. and he benefited from that. I'm not sure which it is. I don't know. But I always wonder when you hear about the ladies' man, you know, voted most most uh, ladies' man in 1964. I'm always like, eee, was he uh, getting full consent? Yeah, you wonder. So Sad. Yeah. Now it could be that uh, she's very beautiful and she didn't see anything in him and then he like opened up to her and all that, but it really doesn't seem like it given what I've learned about Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> and he has the same same narcissism, the same egoism. I want that. That's beautiful. I'm going to go get that. Okay. Not I'm going to find a way to match her needs and wants or find mutual interest. Just I'm going to. It's that pursuit mentality. Yeah. Well, and and I don't know. I don't I don't necessarily mean this as a defense of him in that case. Sure. But for context, Mm -hmm. you know, remember that we're remember the decade we're talking about. Same as you wonder about whether she had agency. Right. You also have to keep in mind that the expectation in yes, that time period absolutely. was that's what a man does. Yes, and that's what a woman does too. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I mean, it's it's know. that I really can't stay, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, you have yeah. to pretend not to want because there's no way that you can actually say what you want and da-da-da-da-da. That's yeah. why people always ask, you know, would you ever go back in time? I'm like, hell no. Like, it's bad enough as it is. <laughs> like, I don't want to go further back. <laughs> so, yeah, my kids asked me, you know, Mr. Blaylock, would, would you want to go back in time? And I'm like, um, no, because antibiotics yeah. are a thing. Yeah. 
plumbing is a thing right (laughs) you know and and like i live in a society with a much higher threshold of violence than there has been in just about any place on the planet yes you know at any point in history so like i don't have to worry about you know getting into a simple you know uh, a wagon fender bender and getting stabbed yeah like you know, like, yeah, absolutely. Like those are my big three, and then on top of that, there's all of the other, you know, all, all, all of the, you know, social, you know, interaction, social status. Mm-hmm. You know, if I went back in time, how do I know that I'm going to be able to convince everybody I'm a noble? <laughs> like I'm, I'm teaching, I'm teaching my students feudalism, like right now. Right. We we just moved from feudalism to talking about the, the medieval church today. Yeah. Well, I know oh, how you'll convince everybody that you're a today. witch. You you just do math yeah. higher than 10. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, yes. But, you know, like like if if they if they look at me, they're going to be like, "Well, okay, he's clearly wealthy because look at that gut." Right. You know, <laughs> this is clearly not somebody who's burning 12,000 calories a day doing surf's work. Exactly. You know, but like uh, by the same token, he clearly is no good on the back of a horse. And, you know, like, like, no, man, I don't like, you know, let's 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 look at the benefits of our current time in comparison to literally any other in the world. Exactly. So So, but anyway, we're getting off the off. Oh, that's okay. I'm going to go further away anyway. So they they get married. So, yeah. And then uh, How, how long? How long were they married? 26 years. Really? Yeah, it okay. gets worse. It gets it's it's shitty. He is oh, a shitty really? human being. Yeah. He he really is. By any by any measure, he's a dick. Really? Yeah. So, yeah, they get married. You know, it's funny cuz you don't cuz you don't hear this story from the people who worked with them. Like, well, yeah, because well, it's mean, glossed over like, oh, well, that's Gene. Oh, OK. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you listen, I was about to say, yeah. you know, while Bill Shatner might not be the best, you know, source to, to you know, think about that with. Right. But, you know, Leonard Leonard Nimoy never had a bad word to say about him. DeForest Kelly and he were true. I mean, it kind of sounds like they were buds. They were, you and, know, and it's um, part of part of the boys' club that he cultivated. But if you look at how he treated uh, yeah. actors on TNG and writers, it's really the way he treats the writers. And again, this plays to his narcissism. He's really okay. good to people who are on screen, the visible people, the cool kids. Uh, okay, All right. he's he's a dick to everyone else. So. Yeah, they get married, um, and uh, you know they, they'd courted and stuff. Then he went off to war, and he comes back. They get married, and he moves out to L.A., gets a job with the police department, um, uh, and basically he's working in the traffic division, and then he starts writing speeches, and he's part of the communications, essentially. So he's a police officer, yes, but really he's the communications guy. And, okay. and almost as soon as he gets there, he starts banging secretaries. That's what he does. Um, And everyone in the police department knows, and everyone in the police department knows that he has an unhappy marriage. And he still goes ahead and has two kids with his wife. Uh, Really? Yeah, yeah. So his first wife and he had two kids. 
Okay. And then uh, eventually he's going to, you know, spoiler alert, he ends up with Majel Barrett for most of his life or yeah. the second half of his life at least. And they have another kid, Rob. Uh, Rob? I forget. Is it Rod maybe? Um, he was Eugene Jr., but they I think they called him Rod. Um, but anyway, uh, he begins to find success as a writer, like I said, and then mm-hmm. as a producer. So he's a okay, climber. Yeah. And he uh, starts to increase the frequency and amount of the affairs that he's having. His wife, Eileen, confided to her friends that she thought that she would lose him to his new career, given the social life that it seemed to encourage or require. Not that he would never come home, but just that he would go home with other people. And she wasn't wrong. Now... He's writing for, I think it's called The Police Story or some some sort of serialized police drama that has, I mean, okay, he's writing police dramas, right? By 56, he's quit the police department, Yeah, but yeah. he's got plenty of contacts. He's got cooperation. I mean, he's, he's really dialed in, in in an odd kind of way. Um, and there's a young actress that he meets on this one called Nichelle Nichols. Oh, okay. And All they right. become friends. And okay. that friendship turned into a relationship once Star Trek started. I know. Shut the front I door. Know. Yeah. That I had not known. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. <laughs> she said she kind of fell in love, actually. And with him, okay. she said it felt kind of the same. Uh, she knew that he was unhappily married. She knew she was another woman. Um, and, uh, she was actually worried for him for what being in an openly interracial relationship would mean to his career. And she said in her own autobiography that he never seemed to care about that. Now, again, I think that he gets credit for being, uh, Woke. woke by virtue of the fact that he's a narcissist. And so... He's like, I don't because, care. Because he's a contrarian and he just doesn't care. Yeah. He winds up getting getting woke tokens. Yeah, he gets his wokens. Okay. And yeah. uh, so then, because he's Gene Roddenberry and he's having sex with Nichelle Nichols, the lucky son of a bitch, <laughs> uh, in, in 1966, 1967, right, uh, which at that time, an interrelational relationship, I mean, the loving case had just gone through in 66. Yeah. Right? So yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. This, is, this is a big deal, right? And L.A. Yeah. is a pretty stratified uh, place, you know. Uh, oh, immensely. Jackie Robinson talked about it all the time, having grown up in Pasadena, about how shitty it was. Um, yeah. Well, he starts a relationship with Majel Barrett. While she's on the show, because if you remember, she was actually in the first pilot. She was number one. Uh, yeah, Ensign. No, she was number one. Oh, oh yeah, she yeah. was. Wasn't she? Okay, yeah, all right. So he starts up a relationship with her. Oh, wow. And Nichelle Nichols, uh, and <laughs> he actually goes to them both, and he says, "I'd like to keep sleeping with both of you. Can we have an open relationship?" This is what I mean about what? narcissism. Like, what? Yeah. What? What? How? Yeah. The sheer mm-hmm. chutzpah. Yeah. 
Like, like he puts the dick in big dick energy. Over, you know? Yeah, no kidding. Over, over and above, like the the ways in which that could be hurtful. Yes. To to but both I, of them. I don't frankly. think he cared about that part. I think he well, cared no, about I what think... he wanted. Wow. Okay. Right. Now she wow. Nichols appears to have backed off once Roddenberry suggested this because she uh because he was still married too. Because she quote Jeez. Yeah. So because she didn't want to be part of a fucking harem. Yeah, well, and she even said, like, I didn't want to be the other woman to the other woman. Yeah, that <laughs> like, makes sense. Yeah. Now, it, by all accounts, Roddenberry seems very smitten with Barrett, but also he wasn't going to divorce Eileen. He claimed it was because he couldn't run the show at the same time and deal with a divorce at the same time. And it's like, mm, that's weak sauce. Yeah, it really that's, is. Like, as a guy who's immensely. been through a divorce during like yeah. finals week, fucking sucks. Oh well, you know. And well, grant you, okay. I'm not writing stories, but you know, I'm doing. You, you know, know what? How many? Yeah. No, I'm stop. Yeah. No, he didn't even get that. No. no. <laughs> Let's. This is especially LA since he God took sake. off for like, the first half many... of the season anyway. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. So. Like how how many how many writers how many producers how many mm-hmm. whoever mm-hmm. at any given time in L.A. are going through a divorce? It's it's L.A. It's it's the TV industry for God's sake. Right. Like I mean it's it's background noise to the culture. Yep. You know and and I mean especially when we when we start getting into the seventies and into the you know early eighties. Mm-hmm. This is of course before that, but. You know, it's, it's, it's the, it's, it's, you know, where the wave began. Yes. You know, and like, that's no, that, that is, that is a transparently bad excuse. Mm -hmm. Like, um, I mean, I, I was not, I was not teaching when I got my divorce, but you know, um, I gotta tell you, um, unless you are for some reason really desperate to go to the mattresses about something. Mm Mm-hmm. All you have to do is have a couple of meetings with an attorney mm-hmm. and, and like sign the papers. Yeah. Like, now, could be more money equals more problems. You know, he had kids. I, my first divorce was very easy because we had nothing. I was student teaching at that time. My second okay. divorce, a lot tougher, a lot more appointments, stuff like that. There were kids involved. There's property involved. Okay, cool. I get that. But you can, you can walk and chew no. bubblegum. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so. no. Just no. It's not like anyway. you don't have showrunners too. So yeah, <laughs> and a writer's room. Yeah. Now, Man, as it on. turns out, he and Nichols didn't stop because a number of times throughout the series, she was found in his office, either waiting for him naked under his desk once, or in flagranto. I know you can't help but be what? impressed, but at the same time, like. You son of a bitch. Like. Because you've got a wife and you've got Majel Barrett. And and again, I don't think this is very much evidence to him being woke when it comes to race and romance so much as it is him feeling entitled and frankly, wanting his cake and Edith too. Yeah. What? <laughs> Good one. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. No. You know, it's, 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 it is a known thing. And and I'm now fully on board with with the narcissism angle here. Yeah. 
because it is it is a known thing that narcissists are because of because of their boundless confidence mm-hmm. um they they are like statistically ridiculously successful in in you know the the wooing part of interpersonal relationships yeah sociopaths are charming yeah and <laughs> so wow yeah. like yeah i'm over oh here worried God. about respecting yeah. people and he's you know yeah. and he's like he's, he's out there not get kid off. yeah now yeah. now she makes christmas he and barrett were more and more open about their relationship it was an open secret as often yeah. happened and i would just point out at the same time, he's still continuing his dalliances on occasion with Nichelle Nichols. And both him and Barrett did seem to be genuinely in love. And I think that you can absolutely argue that he was in love with her. Um, but that didn't stop his eye from wandering, which is absolutely fine if we could find evidence that that Majel Barrett was giving her informed, dignified consent but by most research that I found, including interviews with her much after the fact, after he had died, um, she knew about his affairs, but they also clearly bothered her. Yeah. And yeah. it was more that the relationship was focused on her adoration of him, which if you really think about how he works through yeah. the Star Trek convention circuits in the 70s and 80s, he basically oh, yeah. just wanted to be, and I didn't dig into uh, his family too much, but it would be interesting to see. But he wanted to be adored, apparently. Like, he really, really liked that. Um, Roddenberry began in casting women specifically because he wanted to have sex with them. Um, he even got Majel Barrett to go along with several sexual pranks on other writers. Yeah. Like not actually wow. banging them, but like okay. seducing them in her underwear and all this. Now, he was also pretty braggadocious about these casting sessions with young talent. He would talk to the guys in the cast. He would talk to the guys in the writer's room. He would talk to the guys in the production companies. And he even gave his own secretary a raise so that she would inform him when his wife was on set before she got there. Or when Majel Barrett was on set, because she wasn't a regular necessarily. She played a Nurse Chapel uh, once they got the series. Oh yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. He also his office had very easily visible windows, and he had lots of sex up there with lots of different women, with other people being able to notice. So he was also an open prick to his wife. Uh, when she was with him in social situations to the point where he even contrived a, uh, a a moment where he could embarrass her by having an ex show up uh, to to a party um, with somebody else. So eventually... Wow. Yeah, and, and he was trying to embarrass her publicly, which was weird. Now, eventually, uh, he... Um, he leaves his first wife, Eileen, and he eventually marries Majel Barrett. I don't know why I call her Majel Barrett, whereas I refer to everybody else by their last name, but it just has a, a rhythm to it. Um, mm-hmm. But he marries her in Japan. Uh, I think there was actually a bit of a problem legally with him marrying her because technically he didn't have his divorce secure. 
from his wife, but then they they fixed that. But while he was in Japan, they did the Shinto ceremony, which to me screams fetishization. Um, and while well, he's yeah. yeah, and while he's in Japan, he absolutely gets it on with a masseuse within a week. And this seems mm. to be the norm throughout their entire marriage. And it just it, to me that. I think both things can happen. I think he can be in love with his wife or his second wife. Uh, clearly, he wasn't in love with his first one as much anymore. Um, I think he can absolutely love Barrett and at the same time have that compulsion um, because I think he's broken well, I, inside. Well, yeah, and and, and the, the compulsion involved is about needing, as a narcissist, yes, needing, needing the hit. Needing the validation, like needing needing yes. the hit of validation, needing the hit of, you know, adoration, admiration, mm-hmm. you know, the conquest, you know, whatever it was that Pursuit that and then capture, yeah. yeah, yeah, that 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 reward. Oh yeah, uh, was, was something that he he had an emotional addiction to. Yep, you know, uh, and that's and that's the reason that. You know, people like that yeah. have so much trouble breaking those habits. You know, if, yeah. if somebody if somebody does that once, the likelihood of them doing it again increases by, oh, you know, yeah. God knows how many percent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's that yeah. you've got that hole in yourself and you're trying to fill it and you never yeah. can. But then you ruin the rest of the world trying to fill that hole in yourself. Like we, we just yeah. had four years of that at the executive <clears throat> level. Yeah. So now it could be that his, and we were talking about this a little bit ago, it could be that this is all tied back to his Southern Baptist uh, upbringing because maybe it short-circuited him when it came to his own sexuality. Quite honestly, he might be one of those people that is wired for polyamory more so than monogamy. But the problem is he lived in a time and a place where those things weren't really a thing. And so even if he explored them, he couldn't in polite society necessarily go, Oh yeah, that's the thing that I do. Um, well, and, yeah. and on top of that, it wasn't a, it wasn't enough of a thing that, that, you know, he had the likelihood of finding anybody as a partner who would have, the the capacity to give you know informed dignified consent mm-hmm. you know to that or the know, desire for a uh, partner with that or or yeah because well, yeah. it swings both ways there and and it's actually yeah. similar to what I remember about Timothy Leary and uh, the guy who wrote Wonder Woman and any number of other creatives who set it up where they get to have sex with lots of women and all those women adore and revolve around them. Oh, yeah. So, again, the problem there is that narcissism. And there's no account of any of these women saying, hey, I want to have an re- open relationship on my end. They just kind of accept that this is how he is. And, again, consent and pressure being what it was back then, I have to wonder if he's not just an earlier version of Harvey Weinstein. Mm. Yeah. So now here mm. he, he used to write back and forth with uh, Isaac Asimov, who actually criticized 
uh, Star Trek at one point, and then uh, Gene wrote to him, and they had it out a little bit, but uh, Gene was very respectful, and Asimov was like, you know, actually, I'm going to retract some of the things I said because you make some good points. So he had a good relationship with Asimov, who then later would advise on The Next Generation. Um, but here's what he says, expressing, and I'm going to put in finger quotes, expressing sorrow over it all, because you tell me if you find sorrow. He said, the separation and divorce after 26 years of marriage, particularly with my Southern family traditions and concerns over the sanctity of personal contracts, was a traumatic experience. I realize now it was much more difficult than it should have been. Relationships, like people, can die, and when they can be properly mourned, it seems to me that they should have a proper burial at the appropriate time. I wish I had realized all that sooner. I wish I had realized that all the sooner. Huh. Do you hear any sorrow in that? <clears throat> not not really as such, no. Yeah. I really genuinely am not hearing an awful lot of sadness. I'm, I'm hearing a lot of, well, you know, that's a sad thing. Right. And that's, that's very different from I carry a lot of hurt. And it's you know? also, even, even that I think he, I, I think I can find him saying that he's carrying a lot of hurt. My problem is he doesn't seem to have any regret as to his impact on other people. What you said earlier about like he went at it with no no conception of how it might be considered hurtful to the other person. Yeah. Brilliant. Because that's, I think, at the crux of it. He doesn't at any time acknowledge the feelings of anyone but himself in that quote. It's all about him, his trauma, his yeah. hurt. And it reads yeah. very similarly to his approach to religion. Okay, I can see that. I don't see any God that I should have to lay down to every every seven days, you know? And yeah. I believe in a God. I just don't like these rules. And da, 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 da. Yeah, yeah. He yeah, doesn't yeah. like... Because the rules stop him from getting to have what he wants when he wants it. And I think his approach to marriage, his approach to romance, and his approach to religion ultimately all go to the same thing. And frankly, I think that his approach to war versus peace is while laudable because he came out on the side of peace more often than not um it's still because peace is better for me yeah okay i I can see that it's rooted yeah yeah i i want to i want to note while we're talking about this that Mm -hmm. i find it interesting we're we're talking about you know gene roddenberry's you know dalliances and you know inability to be faithful to a spouse ever Mm mm-hmm at the same time, we're talking about him corresponding with Isaac Asimov, uh-huh. who is a literary titan of the genre and is now um, uh, has has been removed from the canon of sci-fi saints in recent years because the truth has come out and people have stopped, you know, whispering about the fact that he was a a trick trick stare. I'm trying to think what the, what the term is, but you know, when when women at conventions that he was present at who, who had had experience with him might, you know, pull friends aside and go, don't get in an elevator alone with him. Really? Because, yeah, because Asimov was, was a, oh, shucks. It's just, you know, it's, it's harmless. It's harmless fun. Why you gotta be a prude? Uh, wow. So a sexual predator. Hands, grabby hands predator. Yeah. yeah. Lovely. And, uh, Yeah. And, and so it's, it's interesting that we're talking about these two figures within the genre corresponding with one another, (laughs) 
you know, kind of like talking about uh, Robert E. Howard and uh, Lovecraft you right. know, corresponding and being best buddies. Like, wow, the racism. Like, yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> and how much of that is like you can say, well, that's the water they were swimming in because it absolutely was. But also they're also reinforcing each other's shittiness. Well, they're, they're reinforcing you know. each other's shittiness. And the other thing is, yes, that was when we're talking about Asimov um, and well, yeah, when we're talking about Asimov, certainly um, again, he he was he was he had a reputation. So it's not just he was. Well, you know, guys did that. Right. Which, he stood sadly, out. Sadly, he, they did. He, he stood, stood out, out when they did. Like, that. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, you know. There's there, there was sadly a chance that you know any dude you got into an elevator alone with was was gonna you know try to get pushy. But yep. like Asimov had a reputation for it. Wow. Like, mm. man, that's awful. Yeah, I know. And it's the thing is, they're both awful. such wonderfully creative individuals, and it's like their work is amazing, but. Well, they created <sighs> worlds that they had full control over and got to do with women in those worlds whatever they wanted. Yes. Which I feel terrible saying that about fiction writers. Mhm. But that does seem to be a trope. A little bit. Yeah. A little so. bit, yeah. So that's race and sex when it comes to Gene Roddenberry and his personal life. And that's a good place to stop for this episode uh, (laughs) because I almost got to the TV show. Uh, (laughs) We're we're, we're right there. We're right there. We really are. So uh, next episode, we'll we'll do more of that. But so far, besides the fact that uh, he was having sex with Nichelle Nichols, what have you gleaned? You know, I, I did not, I'm, I'm again, I've, I've mentioned this before. I'm, I'm like Trekkie adjacent uh-huh. in, in terms of fandom. Like I watched the series. I really enjoyed, uh, TNG mm-hmm. a lot. Um, you know, and I, and I understand all of the tropes that are associated with the original series and all that kind of stuff. Sure. But, but I was never enough of a fan to read the memoirs and the autobiographies and the stuff of, of, you know, cast members and people from the original series. And so the version of Roddenberry's story that I've gotten is the, uh, uh, Texas state history textbook version, Mm. you know, the, the, uh, plaster saint, (laughs) uh, version of the story. And I, knew I like I vaguely knew that like you know there there was there was a situation where you know Majel uh Majel Barrett was was you know the other woman and I kind of knew that and but the extent to which he was a serial cheater mm-hmm. is new and and I'm saddened to hear it and I think I'm even sadder to find out how little I'm surprised. Yeah, it's you one of those I mean? where, yeah, absolutely. Like where when you hear that somebody, I don't know, like you you hear that I get arrested and and taken out of a school board in handcuffs. You you you're gonna be like, yeah, it fits. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> like oh, he got too mouthy, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like Gene Roddenberry is his vice is uh you know sleep cheating. It's Practices. flandering. 
yeah his his his, his vice is actresses yeah. um you know, and which and, would and, again be fine if he wasn't in a position of power. Like I don't care what people do in their romantic lives, but he's in a position of power, and yeah, and it's inherently yeah, and that, that's that's the problem I have with it. Well, it's an, it's it, it inherently carries tones of being rapey. Yes, because he's because he's in a position of power. It inherently puts in question. The level of the level of willingness involved, as you've already said, mm-hmm. like in 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 every case across the board, you know, and and I'm going to say additionally, you know, you're you're entirely right that the that the power imbalance is yeah. a, is a big deal. It's a huge big deal. Mm-hmm. But just the fact that you know what you you promised somebody that you were going to be their partner. Yep. And then you not not like once, you know, you made slipped. a series of made made a series of bad bad judgment yeah. calls and slept with somebody else, which like would be bad enough. Right. But like you you are so fucked up, frankly, that like you keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Speaks to a a deep level of moral failing, mm-hmm. you know. Even even if everybody involved, uh, even if even if he and every one of his sexual partners were totally, you know, there was no question of anybody's active, willing, enthusiastic consent. There's still a third and apparently a fourth person involved in all of this, and if you don't have their consent, then that's still yeah ugly. And, and, and that's and a third and on. that's a third and fourth steady. Never mind yeah. all the rest. Yeah. And and like, the amount of contrivances that you have to I mean, it just yeah, it's okay. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a depressing gleaning today. Yeah. So. And and I kinda and, and just totally incidentally, mm-hmm. I, I follow Will Eaton on, on Twitter and on Facebook and I'm I'm a big fan of his writing. Sure. And I kind of wonder because he's he's uh, spoken a great deal about his relationship with with Roddenberry, and again, he was one of the people on screen. He was one of the cool kids. Yes, he was playing a character who was at least partially named after Roddenberry's son with Major Barrett, because mm-hmm. uh, Rod Roddenberry's middle name is Wesley. Mm. So, but anyway, okay. And and you know he he talks about his experiences with uh, Gene as being almost like a surrogate dad in some cases. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wonder, because I mean, by that time, Roddenberry was much older and we're talking about TNG, not the original series. Right. You know, I wonder how much of this he knows and like the other people who worked with him later in his career, with with Roddenberry later in his career, Mm -hmm. how much of it they know and how much of it was just like, well, you know. He's not doing that so much anymore, so there's no reason for us to bring it up, kind of thing. I I would say because I've I've looked into this a bit. Um, the way that he treated writers, like he would just he would fuck with them by like denying them parking spots, and messing with like <laughs> ch- like just petty or, or moving their offices <laughs> and stuff, and not like in a way that was a joke. Like, oh no, I don't like you, so your office is now you know further away. Just petty shit, right? Um, okay. He would do that. Um, and there were, 
producers who did his bidding, um, and there were producers who were shown the door, and then there were talents who were brought in and who had terrible stories about Gene Roddenberry. I would say that, like we said before, a sociopath can be very charming. And, you know, the his his treatment of Will Wheaton makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. And so does his treatment of other people. Like, yeah. they pick and choose. They absolutely pick and choose. Yeah. Uh, and I think yeah. that uh, Will Wheaton was a kid, so he gets a pass on, on how he's accepted it. And I kind of get not wanting to crack that open or just being like, well, I don't need to come out publicly and and talk about a man who's been dead for twenty five years. Number of years, yeah. yeah. No, that, so, that makes sense. That yeah. makes that makes sense. Yeah. So, um, you know, and and yeah. Also, it's so anyway, work. That, that's just you know? that popped into my head thinking yeah. about that. So. so, any books you want people to uh, to take a look at? Um, I'm going to very strongly recommend uh, that everybody uh, read um, "Stranger in a Strange Land." Because we were talking about Heinlein earlier, mm-hmm. and it's one of Heinlein's philosophical books, where I mean he gets preachy, but he manages to do it in a way that is more consistently entertaining and less didactic mm-hmm. uh, than, say, in Starship Troopers, which is <laughs> like one, which is one long lecture on political theory that winds up getting lost in the weeds of of oh my god, how fascist are you? Um, which, which is both (laughs) totally true, which is both totally true and simultaneously really unfair. And I think I figured out what it is I'm going to be, uh, doing an episode on here very soon. Um, (laughs) so yeah. Uh, but, but since we mentioned it and since we're talking about Roddenberry's relationship to religion, um, I think Heinlein's relationship to religion, uh, is a good point of comparison. Okay. Well, I'm going to recommend uh, Nichelle Nichols' autobiography called Beyond Uhura, Star Trek and Other Memories, um, because she's a woman who is in sci-fi at the beginning of TV sci-fi, and she wrote her own damn book. Or if she didn't write it, it was ghostwritten and she got the credit, but I'm pretty yeah. sure she wrote it. Uh, and she is a, a tremendously talented woman and, and endlessly fascinating, never mind her beauty. Like, she's a really cool gal. Um and so I, I would and recommend a, a wicked sense of humor too. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I would recommend going in and hearing things in her words. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. You can actually get that, uh, as an audio as well. So, okay. I Very don't know cool. if it's read by her, but I hope so. So, okay. Uh, if people want to argue with you about Heinlein or anything else on the social media, where can they find you? Uh, they can find me in these streets. Um, oh, wait, no, you said, sorry, online. Um, <laughs> they can find me at E.H. Uh, e. Blaylock on the Twitter mm-hmm. uh, and at E.H. Blaylock on uh, Instagram. Uh, and uh, they can, of course, find both of us simultaneously if they want to yell at the two of us together mm-hmm. uh, in cyberspace. Uh, they can do it at Geek History Time on the Twitter machine. Mm-hmm. Where can they find you? You can find me at Duh Harmony. That's on the Insta and on the uh, the Twitter. Uh, two H's in the middle. Uh, you can always find me every Tuesday night uh, uh, on Twitch.tv forward slash Capital Puns. 
Um, and if you wouldn't mind hitting the subscribe button on this podcast, uh, rate, subscribe, review, give us that five stars because you know we earned it. Uh, you can find us on Stitcher, you can find us on Spotify, and you can find us on the Apple Store. So however you came by us, you can also do that. Also, feel free to visit geekhistorytime.com uh, if you want to just stream it while you're doing other things. That's also nice. So There you go. Recommend it to your friends. Uh, show them your favorite episode. Show them the buffet that is the number of topics that we have because I think that that is pretty cool. Um, mm. and we would love it if you could please, again, rate, subscribe, review, give us a five-star if you think we earned it, and you know we did. And, you know, if you have something you want us to get all pointy headed about, yes, let us know because like we can if we can find a hook in it, we'll do it. Mm -hmm. Have hook. We'll travel. Yeah. Yeah. So for Geek History of Time, I'm Damien Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, boldly go.